0: I could end right there. I don't have to talk anymore. That's the point. Who is your audience? If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in John chapter 12 verses 37 through 50. We're finishing up John chapter 12. Now this is an interesting chapter. And this part in particular I find interesting as we're moving in a transition. Everything that Jesus has been doing through much of what we've witnessed in the Gospel of John has been very public. And he's been out ministering to people. He's been healing the blind, healing lepers, walking on water, turning water to wine doing things out there in the public, but what happens next is he's moving towards kind of a private ministry where it's just him and his disciples as he's getting ready for the cross. And while most of his disciples don't seem to understand that that's where things are headed, and his followers don't understand that that's where things are headed, Jesus does. And he spends quality time with his intimate circle, with his disciples. And that's what we're moving towards in this chapter. Now, I think about what's gone on in chapter 12 so far. And it started out with Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. There we go. I don't know why I just got Midwestern on you. It's like Chicago all of a sudden. But Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey and there are crowds of people waving palm branches and laying palm branches and tunics down at the, in front of the donkey so Jesus can walk across it, shouting, Hosanna. And I think about that moment because that's how chapter 12 started. And then we moved into what we talked about last week, where Jesus is having a conversation with some people who wanted to see him, Gentiles who had traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and to hear about Jesus And Jesus confronts them, and as he's talking to them, a crowd around them builds a crowd of Jews around them. And think about that transition moment. This is what goes on in my head, so you're welcome for this. Things ending is awkward. Like, how did that moment come to a close? He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and people are waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, and They're happy that the Savior, the Messiah is coming and they're choosing him as their Messiah and they're waving and praising him and they're publicly admitting. But how does that moment end? How does it taper off? You know, you think about at the end of a a play or anyone who's ever been to a recital of any sort and there's clapping. And any male here who's ever been in junior high knows that you try to be the last person to clap. And so that you get that weird thing at the end is was there one like preteen boy trying to be the last person to lay down a palm branch I these things this is what runs through my head and I equate it to like a bag of microwave popcorn right you never know when is anyone here else really bad at microwaving popcorn this is a a marital fight for me I just can't do it. I don't know what it is. But there's, that, there's the moment where everything is starting to pop and it, you, know, you get all that noise and the celebration of, I'm about to have delicious buttery goodness. And then as it tapers off, there's a random pop here or there and you don't know when the right time is. And if you wait one second too long, 90% of the bag is burnt. But if you go one second too early, there's a pile of unpopped seeds at the bottom of the bag and you're missing out on all his popcorn. And that's how I think of this. Like, were these random people still coming out from the crowd after it sort of died out and laying palm branches down? Anyway, that's just how I see it in my head. How does that moment end? Because it had to. At some point, Jesus got off the donkey, and he made his way over to these guys who wanted to see him. And he just initiates a conversation with them. He doesn't wait for their questions. He just goes right in and tells them what's up. And we ended last week on verse 36, which tells us that while you may have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light, these things Jesus spoke. And then he departed and was hidden from them. So now we're in a new conversation. He left those guys and he left the crowd that had built around them. And now we're dealing with a new conversation and that's, that's where we pick up. And I promise the popcorn thing will come in later. So remember, burnt popcorn. Just all kinds of quality analogy coming from us. You're welcome. Now, verse 37 picks up this way. It says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Now, that's interesting. So Jesus did all of these Things he healed, he healed the blind, he healed lepers, he cast out demons, he walked on water, he fed 5,000 and 4,000 people with fish, a few loaves of, of bread and a few fish. They witnessed this stuff. They, you know, Some people saw him turn water into wine. Some people couldn't see and now they can. Some people couldn't walk and now they can. And they saw all this stuff. In fact, one guy, not that long ago, was dead, named Lazarus, and that happened pretty close to Jerusalem, and a whole bunch of people knew that Lazarus had died, and now Lazarus is in town celebrating Passover. That's a big deal. So all this stuff they witnessed, but they didn't believe. They didn't believe in him. Verse 38 says that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. This is a quote from Isaiah 53 said, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's quoting Isaiah, he's saying, basically, God knew this was going to happen. God knew that he would bring his son here, he would do all of this stuff, and still the chosen people who had, had control of the scriptures and had knowledge of who God was would miss it when Jesus showed up verse 39 says therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again verse 40 and this is from Isaiah chapter 6 he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes lest they should understand with their hearts so that i should heal them this is basically saying god knew they wouldn't they wouldn't believe and even says that God hardened their hearts and covered their eyes. What does that mean? Because that sounds like God doesn't want people to believe. It's really saying this is reminiscent of the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, you have Pharaoh who several times chooses to harden his own heart against God as the Israelites, Moses' is telling the Pharaoh, God wants you to let us go so that we can worship our God properly and go to the promised land. And Pharaoh hardens his heart and basically says, no, I'm God. You do what I tell you to do. I don't know who this God you worship is, but I'm God. You do what I tell you. And he hardens his heart against God. He does it three times. And after he continues to do this, then it says the next three times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. See, When you give yourself over to sin or you reject God, there comes a point where God says, okay, have it your way. And that's what's happening. He's saying, if you you have Jesus in front of you, you've seen him do miracles. You've heard him speak in an authoritative way you've never heard before. And even the greatest teacher in the land of Israel, Nicodemus, has been interested in what Jesus is saying and doesn't want to condemn him. And even with that hanging in the balance, they go, we reject him. And so God hands them over to what they wish. Fine, if you want to harden your hearts, I'll let you. I'll do it. You can be blind to it if you choose to be. So verse 41 says, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. basically stating, Isaiah foresaw what was coming, and he told the story long before it ever happened. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, this is important, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Now we get some extra insight. Though the rulers would be the Sanhedrin and high-ranking members of the priesthood. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and part of the priesthood that were high-ranking members, people who knew the scriptures, They were looking, and they believed, but they refused to confess their belief, because the going standard of what culture decided was that if you worship Jesus, you're going to be excommunicated from temple worship, meaning you get kicked out. You're ostracized from society if you claim Jesus is the Messiah, and so people's fear of persecution not even physically but fear of social of socially being ostracized kept them from confessing what they believed so these people rulers who were well studied in the law saw Jesus they saw what he did they believed but refused to follow through on their belief that's scary And it scares me for a lot of reasons because I think I know people like that. I know people who acknowledge that there's got to be a God. It's the thing that makes sense. And the story of God that definitely makes the most sense is Christianity. It has the most evidence. It's very real. But submitting to it and confessing it, And standing apart from the standard of the world and culture means that I'll be judged and I don't like that. So I'm just going to keep quiet. And even though I believe it, I'm not going to act on my belief. And that's scary because that's, according to God, not a good place to be because it's still rejection. You might know it intellectually. The book of James tells us that the demons know and shudder. But they reject. They don't follow through on what they know. And these guys, they knew, but they refused to stand up. They stood with the Sanhedrin. They stood with the people who were saying crucify him. And they didn't act, even though they knew better. Here's why. Verse 43, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. I could end right there. I don't have to talk anymore. That's the point. Who is your audience? Who do you live for? Do you live for an audience of one? Is God the thing you worship? Is God the person you live for? Or is it the approval of the world? Is it the approval of culture? Whose approval are you seeking? Man's or God's. Now here's the unique thing about this is so many of us choose and live for the approval of men. Many of us are people, pleas- people pleasers. We, we look to seek approval from others when it's impossible to please everybody. You can't make everyone happy. But if you live for an audience of one, it's a whole lot easier to make the one happy. And by the way, he's the ruler of the universe and decides your eternal fate. I think it makes sense to live for that audience instead. Why is it so hard? And it goes back to the previous verse. Because when you stand against the norm and when you go against the grain, it's easy for them to ostracize you. And it's even easier in this culture. So the question, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Who is the audience I've lived for? Who am I seeking approval from? Now Jesus starts to respond. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I'm going to stop there and pause for a moment, because that sounds like something that will later get context. But Jesus starts to respond, and his response is, look, if you believe in me, you're not just believing in me, you're believing in The triune, the whole God. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. God the Father sent me. You believe in him. You've seen me. You've seen him. They're the same. They're the same nature. And he says he's come as a light into the world. He has shed light on the darkness. Now, I can't think of a truer statement. And I think, I can't remember if it was Augustine or, I think it was Augustine who said, The old is in the new revealed, and the new is in the old concealed. And what he's saying is, the Old Testament had the hidden truths of the gospel. And when you see the New Testament and what Jesus did, that that stuff that was concealed in the Old Testament is now revealed from the New Testament, and it sheds light on what we didn't know. And it makes things make sense. In fact, Luke 24, Jesus sees two people after his, his resurrection, those followers of him who are depressed that he was dead. And he's resurrected, walking with them, and they don't recognize him because they're so grief-stricken over Jesus' death, they don't recognize the resurrected one. In fact, they tell Jesus that they're sad And they can't believe he hasn't heard the news that the one they thought the Messiah was dead. And there's even been some reports that some think he's come back to life. And they are talking to Jesus about how crazy that is (laughs) to the person who is raised from the dead. Then he reveals himself to them and it says he expounded unto them all that was written about him from the law and the prophets. And he explained to them everything from the Old Testament that points to him. And he shed light on it. Now, that's the sermon that wasn't recorded that I desire to have recorded. It's my entire goal in ministry is to grasp everything that Jesus could have said to those two guys. Because it's true. There's so much in the Old Testament that points directly to Jesus. And even John is pointing out some of it here. Their own failure to believe was pointed out by Isaiah. In their disbelief, they're fulfilling God's promises. In your rejection of God, you're still working out his plan. You can't get away from it. God is completely in control. But he ends, or the last thing that we read, was, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that, or I'm sorry, in verse 47, was the last verse we read, it said, If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. What Jesus is saying here, it doesn't, it, it's not that he's not the judge. In fact, if you go on to read other books that John wrote, namely Revelation, you find out that Jesus is the judge at the great white throne judgment. But what he's saying is his goal right now is to lay down his life for his sheep. To bring reconciliation between man and God and a forgiveness of sin. His goal is not condemning. His goal is not judging right now. His goal is to open the door so that you can walk through it. You can have a relationship with God again. You can be forgiven for the sin in your life. It can be wiped out and erased and you can be connected to God again. You can spiritually be alive again because of who he is. And it sounds like he's saying that he's not going to judge anybody, but he clarifies his statement in verse 48. He says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And now he makes it make sense. His judgment on that last day is based on you. This is very interesting to me because Jesus isn't saying that people won't be condemned or judged, but that people will condemn themselves through rejecting Christ. Now, the thing I find most interesting about that is Genesis chapter 3. I'm just going to summarize for you what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They've been given jobs to do. And they've done pretty good so far. Adam has named all of the animals. He's been put to sleep and had a rib taken out of him so that Eve could be created. He looks up, sees Eve, and says, whoa man, and he names Eve, and they're living in harmony with God. They can actually relate with God face-to-face. They can walk in the garden with God, but then a serpent comes along, or in the Hebrew nachash, which means shining one, comes and tells them, particularly Eve, that God's lying to you. If you eat this fruit, there's only only one tree you're not supposed to eat from, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent says, no, 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 no. Look at the fruit. It's good for eating. God's lying to you. He doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And Eve looks at it, and she says, that looks pretty good. And she eats it. And then you find out Adam, who was right there, did nothing to stop this, and then eats the fruit himself. And Adam is condemned for this. And they're both kicked out of Eden. Now what does that have to do with this? Well, what people wanted, what Adam and Eve wanted, what they were tempted with was the knowledge of the tree, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Meaning, you now get to become the moral judge of right and wrong. You put yourself in God's throne, and you choose. You, give, you put yourself in God's seat. God's the moral authority and the overall authority of the entire universe and of humanity. Now people are tempted with that desire to have power and authority over their own lives and to put themselves in God's throne. And so Jesus, interestingly, is saying, you have the right to reject You have the right to put yourself on my throne, but you also have the right to deal with those consequences. So if you reject me, and you try to put yourself on God's throne, that means you've condemned yourself. You've given yourself the authority to have moral authority and to reject God, and that means you will spend eternity separated from God. And that is what he's saying you have the rejecting him and not receiving Christ's words has that which judges him on the last day that rejection allows you to judge yourself you put yourself in a place separated from god verse 49 for i have not spoken on my own authority but the father who sent me gave me a command what i should say And what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. That whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So he's saying, What I speak are the words to eternal life. I'm giving you the blueprint, follow it. If you choose to reject the blueprint to eternal life, then you get eternal separation. And you have that right, you have the ability to put yourself in that position. You can eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can choose to put yourself in that position. That also means you deal with the consequences. And all of this are the last things that Jesus says as a crowd is around him before he enters into a time of intimate ministry with just him and his disciples, where he goes and he tries to prepare them for what's going to happen next and what their role is going to be afterwards. And we're just barely halfway through the Gospel of John, and we're already in the last few days before the crucifixion. In the last few days where Jesus spends time with his disciples and prepares them for what's going to happen. And what we see in the last public words before the the crucifixion of Jesus are this. And John's summation of it is many people didn't believe a ton of them did believe but choose not to follow him and choose not to confess him. And then a few did believe. And the reason behind those who didn't believe or who did but chose not to confess him is because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now this goes back to the popcorn analogy. I promised you it would come up again. This makes me think of an over over-microwaved bag of popcorn. All those seeds in that bag waiting to bloom and to become useful for consumption, to become energy, to become something. And as the radiation passes through the bag, the seeds start to pop open and they go from nothing to something. Something useful, something to eat, something healthy but then a bunch of it gets burned. And so when you open that bag of popcorn, what you have is you have some seeds at the bottom that never bloomed. They never got it. They never understood. That's like the people who, after seeing Jesus do everything that he did as he was living among them, just chose to not believe. They just completely outright rejected it. It Didn't matter that the proof was standing right there before them and that he fulfilled every single one of the prophecies. They They just chose not to bloom. They chose to reject proof then you have most of the bag being burned meaning it opened it bloomed but it didn't become useful and it tainted much of what was useful it made your house stink just became burnt it wasn't useful it's not good where does that go In the trash. And there happens to just be a handful of kernels that popped and stayed delicious and buttery. And that's what happened with the crowd. Some completely outright rejected it. They didn't understand it. They never bloomed. They rejected the proof standing right in front of them. They didn't let the radiation touch them. The power of Jesus that was radiating off of him and the truth of his words, it just didn't touch them. They flat out rejected it, likely because they liked the praise of men more than God. There was a group who saw it, heard it, understood it was undeniably true. They saw the proof was in the pudding, and Jesus was right there. They knew people who were blind who could now see. They knew people who were lepers and standing outside of the community who could now worship at the temple because they were clean. They knew people who were healed. They knew that Lazarus was dead and now he's walking among them. And they saw the proof and they said, this guy is who he says he is. But my standing in the community and not wanting to be too offensive and my own concern for how I look to my neighbors and to the people around me means I'm going to suppress that truth so that I don't ruffle feathers. And I'm not going to make a difference. And even though I know it's true, I'm not going to pursue truth. Because I'd rather be I'd rather have the favor of people than of God, and then there's the handful of kernels, particularly Jesus' disciples, who, after the resurrection, grow the church with their life on the line as the emperors and the temple authorities are hunting them down to kill them and destroy them, and they have nothing to gain from it, know that they'd rather have the audience of one. They'd rather have God's approval than Ben's because they know. Even if you can physically take away my life, I know where I'm going and I know where my eternity stands and I will be raised again in a bodily form. So even trying to take away my physical life now doesn't take away my physical life later because Jesus is the resurrection. Just look at Lazarus. And they understood that living for an audience of one was better than living for an audience of people that you can never never get everyone's approval, and trying to fit in doesn't really do you any good. In fact, to close out, I did a whole year at youth group surrounding this idea a couple years ago. And for the year, our, every week we recited Romans 12 2. It's this idea of do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you can test and approve of God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Meaning, don't conform. Don't. If you want to look like the rest of the world, you will look like the rest of the world. If you want to be mediocre, you will end up in mediocrity. If you want to live for yourself, you will, re, you will achieve pleasures and treasures in this world that you can't take with you. If that's what you want, that's what you'll get. But if you want to seek something bigger and better and a story that's eternal and you want to reconcile with God and have eternity on your side, then you can do that. Just don't conform to this world. Conform to Jesus and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Dig into the word. Live by his principles. Love him and let him transform you from the inside out. It's better to live for an audience of one. It's easier to please one than everyone. But it's hard to do because you're going to have pressure all the time coming at you from every direction, temptation from every which way to not live up to your standards or principles. And we will stumble. But the question is do we repent and turn our hearts back to God every time? Or do we walk away? and live for the world because what Jesus says is what good is it for a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Who do you live for? What do you live for? The praise of men or the praise of God? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making this statement for this being your public statement before you head to the cross. Who do you really worship? Who do you really live for? And I pray that we can all examine ourselves and have our hearts melted before you and just just surrender to you. Because you're the one who went through torture on our behalf because you desired so hard for us to be reconciled with the Father. You came so that we don't have to be condemned, but you allow us to condemn ourselves. You give us freedom of choice. You allow us to love you back or reject you. God, I pray that we choose to love you. And through that, recognize how much we need to love those around us. Because that is salvation. We've got it. Others need to hear it. Help us to spread your love and compassion and mercy to those who don't know it. In Jesus' name, amen.